Amen. Just please be seated for just a minute or two. I'm going to ask the band to stay because they're going to just lead us again um, in a minute before we carry on in our service today. Psalm 26, verse 6 says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. I just wanted you to know that the Bible spoke about cleanliness (laughs) before the government made it cool. But in all seriousness, I know, I, I feel, I sense how much concern and worry and fear um, is around at the moment. And it, it seems as though kind of updates to this situation are um, now becoming hourly. It's hard to, to keep off the news apps. People feel panicky. People feel unsafe in their own towns and their own communities. Um, all of the toilet paper is gone. I've counted our roles this morning, so if you've got ideas of up the jumper, think again. But you know, the thing is, if we're not careful, fear and worry can overtake us to the point of paralysis. Holocaust survivor Corey Ten Boom wisely once said that worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows, it empties today of our strength. And Jesus, of course, instructs us in Matthew 6 not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be sensible. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be prepared. And all week, we've been watching the news carefully. We've been making sure that we are following every single precaution that we can to make sure we're as safe as we can be. And if you're on the church mailing list or have liked us on Facebook, you'll have seen the posts we put out on Friday night of how we are currently responding. We are ensuring that our site is cleaned regularly, thoroughly, that hand and soap dispensers are available, that you can wash safely. We're encouraging staff and volunteers to maintain good hygiene themselves. And if there are any symptoms, even if they are mild symptoms, to stay at home for seven days. On Sundays, we are discouraging physical contact. It feels really weird not to have hugged any of you this morning. I always enjoy a cheeky little hug, but we're just waving. (laughs) We're just waving and smiling at the moment. And we've removed things such as biscuits after the service where cross-contamination is more likely. And we're giving people permission not to come if they are elderly or have underlying health concerns and would feel safer remaining at home. And I'm sure you'll see just from looking around that we are somewhat depleted in our numbers this morning and I've had many emails and conversations with people over the weekend who have just got in contact to say you know we're sorry but we're, we're just going to stay away at this time and that's okay but you know even as people isolate themselves we don't want them to feel isolated we don't want them to feel alone or abandoned by their church family and we are doing our best to keep in touch with everybody that we can we're providing online resources that people can use at home you know Probably the hardest decision I had to make this week was to close prime time for the foreseeable. And, and honestly, at the moment, I just feel, I feel heartbroken about that decision. But the, the result of not protecting the most vulnerable um, from this disease I know could be devastating. And that's why we've made that decision. Something else that I've, I've really agonised over this week was whether it was right for us to share the communion meal this morning together. But I really don't want us to miss out on that opportunity today. And so we've worked really, really hard to make sure that we can do it in such a way that puts nobody at risk. And Amy is going to say a little bit more about that in a minute. 
But all of this is really just to say that we take this very seriously. We care about your safety. We love you dearly and we want to make sure that you remain healthy. But we are also refusing to give in to fear and to worry. Because our God is bigger than that. And he calls us to trust him even in the most stretching of times. This morning we've already been singing that powerful song about God's love defending us. And I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I don't know whether the government will stop us meeting. They might, they might not. We might have to shut up shop for a time. But please know if we do, we will do everything we can to continue to be community together, even if that's from a distance. But the one thing I would encourage you to do at this time, in addition to washing your hands and catching it, killing it and bidding it and all the other governmental advice that we've received, is just to look out for each other. Just to step up your care of each other. You know, as you look around and you notice the people that aren't here, please take the time this week to get in touch with them. Pick up the phone, send an email, just say, look, we're thinking of you. Are you all right? Is everything okay? We're watching over your shoulder. A little bit later on, I'm going to talk this morning, um, continuing in Mark, I'm going to look at the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and your mind and to love our neighbours as ourselves. And I, right, right now, I, I feel like what we need is the love of God, the perfect love of God that casts out all fear and that we need to make sure that we're looking out for each other as best as we can. So just before we carry on in our service, I wonder if you'd stand with me um, and I'm going to pray. I want you guys to pray as well. Don't hold hands, but we're going to pray. (laughs) We're going to pray for ourselves. We're going to pray for those that we know are are taking this time to isolate themselves and staying away. We're going to pray for those that we know are sick. We're going to pray for our government as well and the decisions that they're having to take at this time. Um, And after that, I've just asked the band to lead us again in a song, a song that I think declares our heart as a church in this situation, our trust and our faith in God, that he will see us through And that he will take us beyond fear and worry this morning. And I really believe that that's a work that God needs to do in our lives this morning. So let's just shut our eyes for a minute and pray together. Heavenly Father, at this time where we seem to be marked with fear and worry, God, would you make us agents of peace and love in this world? Heavenly Father, we just... Lift up those now, all of those that we know and all of those that we've heard about and all of those that we don't know who are currently suffering with this virus. Father, would you bring about that, your healing in their lives? God, I pray that you would take away any fear of loneliness and isolation, any fear of desperateness and hopelessness. Father, we think especially at this time of the the elderly folk in our church, those that are connected to our church through our prime time ministries, Father, those that we've had to say, no, at this time we need you to stay away. God, I pray that they would still know that they are loved, still know that they are cared for by us and by you. Father, that they would not succumb to feelings of loneliness and isolation. And Father, we pray also for those that maybe are just being precautious and just taking a step back at this time and saying, no, I'm just going to stay away because I feel that's what I want to do and I want to be safe. God, I pray that they would know your grace and your closeness and your goodness at this time as well. And Father, we pray for ourselves this morning. Father, we pray that we would not become paralyzed with fear and worry, but that we would continue to trust in your unfailing love. 
God, that we would have a deep assurance in our hearts this morning that you would see us through, Father, that you have not abandoned us, Father, that you are close. And Father, that we are your community, this church in this town, in this place, Father, that we are agents of your love and peace. Father, this morning as we go through our service, as we share communion together, God, I pray that the sense of your love and your peace and your joy and your goodness would just be so on us. Father, even as we've come into this place, maybe just feeling worried, maybe just feeling concerned, feeling even perhaps frightened and questioning whether we should be here, Father, I pray that you would remove those concerns. And Father, that we would know your peace today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Good morning. I know I've already said good morning, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it again for um, those joining us um, on the live stream. I know there's a few this morning, so hello you specifically. Um, it's good to see you. Thank you for being with us this morning. Um, we had the first of our um, Bible journaling course this week, um, which I heard went very, very well. Um, I sort of half expected to see a few more kind of felt tips and crayons and kind of ribbons and stuff uh, laid out from people this morning. But however you want to make notes this morning, that's okay. No problem. Um, This morning we're going to be continuing in our series on Mark, Mark's Gospel, Mark My Words we've called it. And we took a little break from this series last week for um, International Women's Day and Brenda gave us an excellent word from John chapter 4. Um, And that's available online if you'd like to to catch up with that, go and check it out. Um, But the week before that, Martin took us into chapter 12 of Mark's Gospel. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story today. Um, So as you're turning there into your Bibles, getting your felt tips ready, um, let me just recap for a minute or two. Uh, Mark is written by an important figure in Christian history, an important figure in the early church. He was a co-worker with the Apostle Paul. Um, and he was a close friend of Peter, who was arguably Jesus' closest disciple, the founder of the church in Jerusalem. And as Peter preached these stories and talked about Jesus, Mark wrote them down and he organises them into a book or a gospel. We think originally for the Christians in Rome, um, but also for us today. And Mark's book opens with the following line, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah the Son of God. And it's a statement, really, of Mark's belief um, that Jesus was not only the long-held Messiah, that just means anointed by God, but also the Son of God himself. And after that opening line, Mark starts to tell us stories from Jesus' life, right from the moment he was was baptised all the way through to the point where he was crucified and uh, ultimately his resurrection. And the first 10 chapters of Mark, they kind of deal with Jesus' acts around Galilee and his miracles and his stories and his healings and all of that. Um, And then chapters 11 through 16 take place exclusively in Jerusalem. And the first 10 chapters take place over about three years, period of three years. And the last uh, five, six chapters take place over a period of about one week. And sometimes referred to as the Passion Week. Um, So at the beginning of chapter 11... As Jesus enters the city, like the kings of old on a donkey, his followers wave branches and sing Hallel, which means praise, Hosanna in the highest. But he does nothing more than expect the temple and then leaves 
just goes back out. And then when he returns the next day, it's clear that he didn't like what he saw there. He drives out those that were selling, those that were buying, even those that had bought things and were just carrying them through the temple. He says, no, on with you. You need to leave. And he taught them from the prophets, like Isaiah, who spoke of God's desire that his house should be a house of prayer for all nations, for everyone. And Jeremiah, who spoke about how um, God's people were gathering in his house, but they were claiming to be righteous. They were claiming to be fine and, and, and living the right way, but they weren't. And they were turning his house into a den of robbers or a den of thieves. They were rotten to the core. And Mark tells us that the crowds, they were just amazed. They were blown away by his teaching. They thought, this is, this is fantastic. But there were certain groups of people there who were not amazed. Certain groups of people who were less than thrilled. And we meet them at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. Um, all of those who saw Jesus' potential to upset more than just the apple cart, as it were. They saw how the crowds flocked to him. They saw how the people hung on his every word. And what's worse, when Jesus returned again to the temple on the following day, he told a story that was very clearly about them. A story that, in actual fact, painted them in a very bad light indeed. It suggested that they were the ones who were responsible for killing God's prophets, God's messengers, and failing in their duty to care for the people. And if you missed Martin's excellent teaching on that a few weeks ago, you can find it online. And so, this is where we are this morning, verse 28 of chapter 12. Jesus is still in the temple, he's still teaching, he's still talking, he's still debating with those people that were there. He'd spoken with the Pharisees and the Herodians who had tried to kind of butter him up with praise. They said, oh, we know you're a man of integrity and, and you know, everything you say is true and your hair is fantastic and your sandals are great and Jesus said, of course, seen right through them. And he's spoken with the, the Sadducees who presented him with the most ridiculous story that they could think of in order to try and make him look dumb. But Jesus had defeated them using the scriptures, the very thing that they should have known very well. But now he appears to be approached by a teacher of the law who, it seems, at least on the surface, has a genuine interest in what Jesus has to say. This is what it says in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Of all the commandments, which is the most important? It's a big, big question. What's the most important commandment? Right now, the most important commandment is probably wash your hands regularly. Stay inside if you have a cough. Um, in our household, the most important commandment is be nice to your sibling. Please be nice. For goodness sake, stop hitting them. Get off them now. Please stop it. It's rarely followed. Um, but for a Jewish person, this was a, a very loaded question indeed. Um, because the teacher of the law, we'll, we'll call him Dave to make it easier, Dave was asking this question about which commandment of the, from the law of Moses that we should pay the closest attention to. Because 
for a Jewish person that was trying to be faithful to the law um, or the Torah, the Jewish Bible, there was something like 613 commandments to contend with, or mitzvot, as they call them. You see, you thought there was just 10, didn't you? 613. And these commandments covered everything from how to interact with God and the Torah, to how to behave at business, to how to behave at home, to what to eat, what to, to wear, how to interact with your neighbour, how to interact with foreigners and, and all of this sort of stuff. And, and, you know, some of it was quite manageable, quite straightforward, like um, do not murder, do not commit adultery, fairly, I mean, we're okay with that mostly. Um, others were just a little bit more obscure, like one was don't shave the front of your head if someone has died. Anyone done that? <coughs> Me neither. Um, others were kind of uh, like helpful. So one was like if you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you might not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Helpful. People fall over, so you know, put up a little wall, keep people safe. Others you would have thought were a bit more self-evident, like if you find a worm or a fly in your apple, don't eat it. <laughs> Top tip, right? Take that one for free. They, they range from don't consult with ghosts or wizards, sort of mediums or spiritualists today, all the way through to make sure your garments have tassels on the corner with a blue cord on each tassel. All right? There's a lot to contend with. And what was kind of more difficult was that, that, that some of the laws weren't all that clear. So Leviticus 23.3, for example, says, There are six days in the week where you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. Fine. No problem. I won't do any work on Saturdays. Except, what do you mean by work exactly? Like, is brushing my teeth work? My kids think it is. <laughs> what about helping someone that's fallen down a well? Does that work or should I just leave Timmy there till the next day? What about if, if you, you need to bandage up a cut? Does that work? Should I just let it bleed or, or what? And so people quickly realise that some of these laws have nuances. Even something as straightforward as do not murder can have problems. What about self-defence? What about workplace accidents? What about if you haven't finished putting up the little wall around your roof and someone falls off? Is it then your fault? So rabbis came up with more laws to make sure the original 613 laws were being adhered to. Um, with the Sabbath, for example, they created 39 categories of labour that were forbidden. And these were debated heavily. People argued about them and, and some people's approach was to do all they could to obey all 613 commands plus all the extras while others recognised it probably wasn't that feasible. And so they tried to work out which was the most important to get right. How can we reduce the law to its key core precepts? How can we make sure we're covering the main stuff so we don't have to worry so much about the other Bits And this wasn't about being kind of picky or, or pedantic in any way. It mattered because for them it was about being faithful to God. It was about following um, what he'd called them to, honouring their covenant relationship with him. God had told them through Moses that if they obey him fully and keep his covenant, they would be his treasured possession and he would protect them and he would bless them. And so this was really, really important. And so when Dave asks the question, what's the most important commandment? 
He's giving Jesus the opportunity to weigh in on what was a central debate of Jewish life in the first century. How do we live correctly for God? How do we contend with all of these commandments? How do we manage to be faithful when we're faced with so much? And the answer that Jesus gives is extremely Jewish, which we shouldn't be surprised about because Jesus was Jewish after all. He quotes the Shema, which is a fun word to say. See, it's what he says. He says, the most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now the Shema is a a prayer. It's a prayer that's said by Jewish people every morning and every night. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6 in our Bibles and our Old Testament, verses 4 to 5, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk on the road and when you lie down and when you get up. That's why they pray the prayer morning and night. It also says they should tie its words as symbols on their hands, bind them to their foreheads, write them on the door frames of their houses and on their gates. And so these words were hugely significant, hugely important for Jewish people. And they still are. The prayer is still recited today. But what does it mean for us? And why is it the greatest commandment? Why does Jesus hold this up as the most important? So let me try and give you just a little bit of kind of history for a minute or two. Here it is, the Shema. The prayer begins with the word, hear, hear. Some translations, uh, I think the New Living translates it as, listen instead. And in Hebrew, it is the word Shema. It's where the prayer gets its name. And listen is probably a better translation than hear, because hear is a little bit too passive. When God says he wants his people to Shema, he wants them to pay attention to him, to focus on what he's saying fully. It's like, you know, when you're um, trying to get the kids to listen to you and you know they're not really listening you say all right put it down no 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 turn around focus look at me eyes on me i want to say something really important to you are you listening my two i have to get them to repeat it back before i know that they've fully understood but the shema goes one step further it also expects a response it's not just about listening it's about responding as well When I want my kids to listen, it's normally because I want them to do something. Tidy their room, stop hitting each other, bring me a cup of tea. (laughs) And the same is true when God says, listen, or Shema, he expects a response. I mentioned earlier that covenant relationship with God, with the nation of Israel. It says in Exodus 19.5, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And the word obey, here is the word Shema. It's the same word. There are not two different words for listen and obey in Hebrew. It's the same. And so where God wants his people to listen, he expects that they will also respond in obedience, that they will do as he instructs them to do. So hear, 
O Israel, could be translated for us as listen and obey the things that I tell you. Then it says, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Or in the New Living Translation, the Lord alone. He is one in the sense of being the one and only, like Chesney Hawk sung about in the 90s. <laughs> I am the one and only. No one but anyway. Be in your head all day now. And you might notice in Deuteronomy that the word Lord is written in all caps or, or small caps. And if you read the Old Testament um, much, you'll notice that that appears quite a bit. Lord in all caps appears something like six and a half thousand times in our Old Testament. And it's written that way because it's kind of a secret code. Like it's quite cool this. Um, you see, when we say Lord, we might imagine a, a master or a king. But what it's really referring to is the name of God himself. So why is it written this way? Well, you might remember in your Bibles, um, in Exodus 3, Moses um, asked for God's name. He said, if, if I go to the Israelites and I, I tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me, and they say, well, what's his name? What, what should I say? What should I tell them? Who should I say he sent me? And God said, well, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am can also be translated as I will be what I will be, or I be, I am, I be. Sort of sounds like something Beyonce would call her kids. Um, <laughs> but the Hebrew word is ehyeh, ehyeh. Sort of sounds like you're clearing your throat a bit, doesn't it? Ehyeh. And it essentially means that God will always be. He doesn't depend on anyone else. I am forevermore. I will always be forever. It would be kind of odd for Moses, though, to say, I am sent me or I will be sent me because he is not, but God is. And so God gives him another name that he can use in verse 15 of Exodus 3, which is Yahweh, which is he will be or he is. Okay? You with me so far? It's nice to have a laugh track. That's exciting. <laughs> it's helpful. With the lower congregation, it's good just to amp it up. Um, good, right, so this is where it gets complicated, all right? Because the Hebrews, the Jewish nation, wanted to honour the name of God, they chose not to say the name out loud, so they replaced it with their word for Lord, which is Adonai. And then when they were writing things down, in order to make sure that people didn't accidentally say the word Yahweh, they took the four consonants from Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, and they inserted the four vowels from Adonai, meaning Lord, to create a made-up word, Yahuwah. Okay, which eventually became Jehovah, which is still used today. Um, but Yahuwah was never supposed to be said out loud. It was just a reminder not to say Yahweh, instead use Adonai. It also means we don't actually know that Yahweh is the correct pronunciation of that word. It's just a best guess. So Lord in all capitals is a translation of Yahuwah, which is an amalgam of the words Yahweh and Adonai, which is to remind us not to say the name of God out loud. Clear? Helpful, right? <laughs> but more simply put, when we see Lord in our Bibles, what we're supposed to do is think of the name of God, who is and was and will be forevermore. Um, Jesus, of course, gives us another name to use, which is Abba or Father, um, which at the time would have been kind of 
like mind-blowing that the God of all creation could be communicated with in such familiar terms. But then even Jesus adds, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name. God is both familiar and set apart. He's um, both uh, as, as, as close as a father and unknowable as all of time and space. Uncontainable, not even in a name. And so far, the greatest commandment is something like, listen and obey the one who is forevermore is your God, him alone. Okay. Here comes the easy bit. Love the Lord, all capitals, with your, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We're called not just to hear and obey, but to love as well. The Hebrew word for love is ahava. It's sort of the love that's experienced between a parent and a child, a husband and a wife, like the closest of friends. It's a love that becomes a driving force in our lives. It's a strong love. It's a love that, that drives us into action. I have a lot of loves in my life. Um, this week I discovered a new love. Um, it's uh, crunchy peanut butter on hot toasted crumpets. Right? <laughs> Nutty crumps, I call them. You can have that for free. <clears throat> now, I wouldn't say that my love for Nutty crumps has impacted my life in any way. Um, yet. Um, but my love for my wife and my children has. You know, most of my weeks are oriented around my children. I get them out of bed in the morning and then I, I make sure that they're fed and fed well. We only have Cocoa Pops on the weekend and that they've done their teeth and, and washed their face and then I drive them to school and make sure they go into school and then I pick them up from school and take them home and then make sure they've had some more food, um, you know, and then take them to their clubs and put them to bed and, and, and all the rest of it. And it's, you know, my love has, has driven me to live my life differently. In the next chapter in Deuteronomy, it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. You were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you or ahavad you. God's love is the, the driving force behind his actions towards us. And so we respond in kind. And what does that love look like? Well, the Shema says it should involve all of our heart. And the Hebrews had um, a, bit, a much more expansive view of the heart than perhaps we do. They, they saw it as the center of our being, the kind of driving force behind all that we do. Um, it was the seat of our emotion, and, but also the, the reason behind the choices that we make. You know, even today with our kind of more scientifically minded um, brains, we still use expressions such as follow your heart or... What's your heart's desire? What's in your heart? For the Hebrews, that was much more literal. The heart was where reason and wisdom and intelligence lived. They had no real concept of the brain or intelligence being up here. It was all here. When David messed up with Bathsheba, he prayed, creating me a clean heart. Something's gone wrong in my heart and making wrong choices. Jeremiah spoke about the law being written on people's hearts so they could make right choices. Ezekiel talked about being given a new heart, a heart of flesh and not stone. And so to love with all your heart is not just an emotional choice, but it's an, an intellectual choice as well. And then the Shema says we're to love with all of our soul. And again, our view of the soul is quite um, different to that of the ancient Hebrew, Hebrew view. Hebrew view. Um, they, you know, we sort of think of the soul as this, I don't know, like invisible, wibbly-wobbly thing that lives inside of us and sort of floats up to heaven when we die or something. 
But for them, it was their, their whole being. It was all that they are. When they speak of their soul, they're referring to everything physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, economically, their, their whole self, every part of them. To love someone with your soul was to love with all that you have. And then finally, the, the Shema talks about strength. And this isn't just physical strength. It's the, your ability, your capacity, your, your giftings. When Jesus quotes Mark, you notice that he adds in the word understanding. He adds in the word um, mind there as well. And so there's, there's kind of this escalation that takes place in the prayer. You need to love God with all your heart, with the, the choices that you make, with your thought processes. You need to love him with your soul, with your very being, with all that you are. You need to love him with your strength, the way you live your life, your abilities, your gifts, your talents. Nothing is missed out. Your love for God should incorporate every area of your life. So like I said, nice and easy. When was the last time you loved God with all that you are, heart, body, mind, soul? I think I managed it for a few seconds last week and I was concentrating really hard. But all joking aside, it's a challenging passage. But Jesus isn't done. He does something else. He does something unexpected. He says the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, these together. He adds a part two. He adds something into the Shema that was never in the Shema. It's not even the same book. This is Leviticus chapter 19, and, and Leviticus 19 is just a whole list of laws, and Jesus seems to pluck this law out from the middle of the list and place it next to the command to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he says these two together, together these two are what it's all about. Loving God and loving one another. God and people, hand in hand. And so why does he choose this one? Well, I think one flows from the other. Because we can't love God and not love his creation. The Apostle John says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister who they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. You know, when we truly love God, we can't help but love those around us. Because when you truly love somebody, you start to see the world as they see it. You start to like the things that they like. You start to love the things that they love. And God so loved, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever might believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, I think the reason that God gives us this instruction to love him with all of our heart, soul and mind, I think the reason he calls us to do it that way is because that is the way that he loves us. God's love for his creation caused him to send Jesus into the world. It caused him to give us that perfect example of sacrificial love, a love that looks to the needs of others, a love that recognises where there's injustice in the world, where there is poverty, where there is neglect, a love that seeks the outsider and the downtrodden and the cast aside and the outcast and the broken and the hurting and the lost and the forsaken and the forgotten. A love that hangs on the cross and prays forgiveness for those that nailed it there. And it's only in loving God that we discover that love for ourselves. We love because he first loved us. 
John also writes, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but in actions and truth. And you know, when Dave asked the question, he was looking for the easy option, the, the greatest commandment. Where do I need to focus my attention to be right with God? What can I reduce this down to? Help me, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, the law begins and ends in love. And Matthew retells his story. He says that Jesus says the law and the prophets, they all hang on these two commandments. They all hang on them. Love God with all that you are and love others as you would want to be loved. Remember a few weeks ago when the, the chief priest asked about divorce, another matter of the law, Jesus said it was because your hearts were hard that Moses gave you the law. You were closed off to God's love. That's why you needed it. And the religious leaders of the day, they were looking for that one thing they needed to do in order to satisfy in order to guarantee that they were fine, to guarantee that they were safe from judgment. But Jesus wanted more. Jesus wanted a love that would go beyond the bare minimum, a love that would look to the needs of others, a love that would sacrifice all. And you know, sometimes we can be legalistic in our faith as well. We can look for the minimum requirement to stay on God's side. I've been to church twice this month, that should do. I've done my daily Bible reading twice this month. I unmuted the prayer network for a bit. You know, I told Trudy at work that I go to church. I'm doing okay. I'm doing better than most. And that's a dangerous thing, isn't it, when we start to measure ourselves against those around us. I'm, I'm doing better than Jeremy. Not quite as good as Lizzie. But Jesus calls us so much deeper. He calls us not to measure ourselves by law or tradition or compare ourselves to others, but to explore the depths of our love for him and those around us. In the words of the Bee Gees, how deep is your love? How deep is your love? Jesus calls us into relationship, not religion. He calls us into relationship, not religion. Religion has been used to justify some of the most unloving acts in history. But relationships are always founded on love. Now when Dave hears Jesus' words, it says in verse 32, Well said, teacher. You are right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he had answered wisely and said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And with that, no one dared ask him any more questions. God is way more interested. God is way more invested in our relationship with him and him alone and the love that we show for each other than he is in our religious practices, our songs and our services. Check out Amos 5, 21 to 24, if you're not sure about that. And so what's our response this morning to this passage? How might we increase our love for God and our love for others this week? Well, firstly, I think that we need to recognise how much it is that we are loved by God. God's love for you is outstanding. You know, he knows every detail of your life, every bad choice you've made, every misstep, every wrong turn, every triumph, every failure. He's seen you at your best and he's seen you at your worst and yet his love remains constant. 
the same yesterday, today and forever. God's love for us is perfect. Our love for him is, is not. We're fickle and easily distracted and, and we get sidetracked with lesser loves and things that we think will fulfill us but rarely do. You know, when Jesus spoke about God's love in the story of the prodigal son, he spoke as, a, as God as a father waiting patiently for his son to return. He says that, that when the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion and he ran to him and he says he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and the son, he, he tries to apologise. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you, but the, the father cuts him off and he calls the servants and he says, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. He says, kill the fattened calf because we need to celebrate because this boy of mine was dead but is now alive forevermore. It's this beautiful, extravagant love that he pours out upon him. You know, the son returned expecting the position of a servant, but the father's love is not diminished by the actions of his child. His love remains the same. Wholehearted, extravagant love poured out upon him. Outrageous love. No one, no one could doubt this father's love for his child. It was visible to everyone. And in the same way, God pours out his love for us on the cross. As Jesus stretches out his arms and dies, he shows us how much we are loved by God. Is our God, is our love for God like this? Wholehearted and undeniable, or is it half-hearted and barely recognisable? You know, it's easy to tell what someone loves. You can't always tell what they believe, but it's easy to tell what somebody loves because they talk about it. They show it off. They spend money on it. They make it a priority in their life. Is God a priority to you? Because you are a priority to him today. Secondly, this morning, we need to consider our love for others. You know, Jesus, instead of giving us one simple instruction to follow, he gives us a principle by which we can judge every situation. Firstly, do my actions speak of my love for God? And secondly, am I behaving in the most loving way possible towards my neighbour? And according to Jesus, our neighbour is anyone in need. He told the story of the, the Good Samaritan, didn't he, who helped the man beaten by robbers and left for dead. But the twist in the, in the minds of the hearers is there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan. Samaritans were sinners, unclean, unworthy. They had different ideas about God and where to worship and all the rest of it. But Jesus uses them as an example of what it means to be a good neighbour. And we are called to demonstrate love to everyone, regardless of race or gender or creed or sexuality or status or wealth. God's love does not discriminate. God's love does not keep people at arm's length or push anyone away and neither should ours. It's a big message this morning, I know. It's one that has many applications. As I mentioned earlier in the service, you know, one of those applications is for us to consider how that we can continue to be loving to those people who are a part of this community but not with us at this time. How we can continue to love people through the fear and the worry. How we can continue to demonstrate the love of God to everyone that we meet and be a different voice in this atmosphere of panic and fear that seems to be invading our nation. We have assurances that they don't. But I guess my prayer for us this week is that as we seek after God with our whole heart, with our soul and our strength, as we draw near to him and learn more of his incredible love for us, we begin to see the world through his eyes. 
that we would begin to understand the boundless, extravagant, ridiculous, outrageous love that he has for us and demonstrate that to others that we encounter. I wonder if the band would come and join me on stage. We are few this morning, but we're still community together. And I want you to be encouraged today as you go from here. I want you to leave this morning assured of God's incredible love for you. I want your trust in him to be increased. And I want you to go with his eyes on this nation. I want you to look for those people that you can come alongside and love. And maybe that's not by being near them. (laughs) Maybe that's at a distance. But we have a responsibility to those around us to be that voice of hope, don't we? I wonder if you stand with me. Let's, um, Let's just pray before the band lead us again. God, would you just send your Holy Spirit to minister to us now? Father, would you just rest on each of us in this place? God, we might be few in number, but we are strong in you. God, would you just begin to overwhelm us again with your love? God, would you just begin to remind us of how much you love us? Despite our fear and our failure, despite our inadequacies, despite those times where we continually mess up, despite those times where we get in our own head and we begin to think, ah, oh, I'm just not good enough. I'm not good enough for you. Say that your love is not dependent on us. You love us because you love us. You are driven by your love for us. And God, I pray that you would just remind us of that love this morning. That image of the father running to the prodigal and embracing him. And not even allowing him to finish his apology before he restores him to how he should be. Before he reminds him of all that he has in his father's household. God, I pray this morning we will be reminded of all that we have in you. That we are not children of fear or children of worry or children of concern, but we are children of the living God. Thank you, Jesus. God, would you just challenge us today? Would you just allow us to go from this place, God, so full of your love that we can't help bring it to everyone that we meet? God, would you allow us to be a different voice to this nation at this time? One that has confidence because we know you.